Hosea chapter 3 is our text for study this morning. We're studying these minor prophets, these short books at the end of the Old Testament. And sometimes I've said in our study of other prophets like Amos, you have to work. It's always there. The grace of God in Jesus Christ is always there. The love of God is always there. Sometimes it's very tough love. This is not so hard to find. This love of God expressed in Hosea's love for his wayward wife. Reflecting the love of God for Israel and ultimately for us. This love in this book is scandalous. It's hard to wrap your head around it. And you know, when when Paul started preaching... When Jesus was preaching, there was no New Testament, of course, but they preached the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus said, you should have known from Moses and the prophets that these things must happen. What are these things? The most important is the cross. And if we see the cross anywhere in the Bible, it's in Hosea. I want you to turn in your bulletin or in your Bible to Hosea chapter 3, just a few verses, the whole chapter in these few verses, Hosea writes, the Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her As the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So, I bought her. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man And I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Brothers and sisters, grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Open our eyes, O Lord. For the first time or the thousandth time, open our eyes to see the grace and love of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. And may it change the way we live May it change the way we are as a church. May it bring great glory to you and great fruit for your kingdom. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake. And God's people said together, amen. Christopher Hitchens, who died about a decade ago, was a famous journalist, infamous to us in the Christian world because of his 
uh, consistent and vociferous attacks against Christianity. He was an outspoken atheist and used his brilliance in an attempt to show the falsity of Christianity. One of his last books, if not his last book, was God is Not Great. And to promote that book, he went on a book tour across the United States and also interacted with a number of evangelicals and have public debates and so forth. And uh, on that book tour, he was interviewed in Portland, Oregon, by someone who said she was a Christian. She was a Unitarian minister named Marilyn Sewell. And in in that interview, uh, Sewell said uh, to Hitchens, she said, you know, you talk a lot about, you talk about Christians in this book, but when you describe Christians in your book, you are you're referring to those of the fundamentalist variety. I'm a Christian, but I'm not a fundamentalist. I'm a Christian, she said, but I don't believe that the Bible is true. I don't believe the Bible, the books are without error. I don't believe that they're inspired tales. I don't believe that Jesus is the son of God or was the son of God. I don't believe he rose from the dead. And I especially don't believe that he died on the cross in order to save people from sin. But I'm a Christian. Hitchens said, if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, You're really not, in any meaningful sense, a Christian. It took Reverend Sewell's breath away and said, let's go to some other topic. Hitchens was insightful. There is no Christianity without the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no Christianity without that essential center of our faith, which is that the Son of God, holy God and holy man, totally without sin, died on the cross in the place of sinners and whoever wishes to be reconciled with God the Father must receive that gift of sacrifice, the substitution of that righteousness for their sin, which means we must admit that we are as sinful as the Bible says we are and as desperately in need of it. And there is no hope of eternal life in this one or the next without embracing that cross. Even an atheist who is intellectually honest recognizes that. And likewise... The book of Hosea makes absolutely no sense if Jesus did not have to die to make sinners righteous. Hosea, Hosea chapter 3, should be cut out of the Bible if Jesus did not have to die in order to reconcile a holy God to a prostituting people. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. And uh, the gospel has three points. You've heard me say it over and again. I've just changed the titles here. It's guilt, grace, and gratitude. 
Here I've said, we're going to talk about calling and redemption and sanctification. But it's guilt, grace, and gratitude. If the gospel exposes the bad news about our need, it shows us the good news for his supply. And then the logical response to grace, which is to respond with obedience, joyful obedience. Now, the very first point is that that God exposes our guilt, but he does so by his grace. In fact, it's not three separate points. It's all grace. It's grace even in exposing our guilt because God always approaches sinners. Sometimes people throw out these labels, Reformed theology, Arminian theology, Calvinistic theology, whatever it is, here is what the Bible teaches. God always pursues the sinner. The sinner never pursues God. If left up to the sinner, we would never pursue God. Each of us has turned to his own way. God always pursues, whether it's God pursuing Adam in the garden when he's hiding behind his fig leaves and in the bushes, whether it's God calling out to Abraham while he's worshiping the moon in Ur, whether it's uh, God pursuing Jacob when he's running after his own desires, whether it's God pursuing Zacchaeus, God always pursues sinners. He's the one who calls. He's the one who calls. And he comes after us. He calls for us. He pursues us long before we are worthy. Before we are worthy. Here is illustrated in this text that very point. That uh, God says to um, Hosea, I want you to go to Gomer and love her again. Now, if you're just joining us in this study, you have to realize that Hosea, prophet of God in the Old Testament, about 700 years before the birth of Christ, was called by God to marry a woman from the northern kingdom, which was his kingdom, Israel. And she was chaste when she married him, but because she, and she had everything in the world. She had uh, anything that anybody should want. She had a loving husband. She had a, a, love, a, a community around her. She had the revelation of God and salvation. And, and she had a beautiful child. But one day she wanted more. She wanted other things. Other things that would perish. Other things that would fade away. And she said, if you don't give them to me, I'm going to go get them from somebody else and I'm going to trade my purity for those trinkets. And not only did she leave, become a prostitute effectively, but she had two children by another man or by other men. And so that's where we left off the story. That, 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 that Gomer has turned her back on everything and she's gone off to the brothel. And before she comes to her senses, before she becomes worthy, quote unquote, before she shows repentance, before she apologizes, God says, I want you to love her again. I want you to go to the brothel. I want you to find her. I want you to show love to her and bring her out. Can you imagine the mockery of Hosea? It's enough already. The shame he's experienced. 
but he obeys. He goes to find her before she is worthy. I want you to notice, I want you to notice this is just, this is a pastoral point in passing. And by passing, I don't mean it's unimportant, but it's an, it's an important point. You notice that God doesn't say, I want you to go and forgive Gomer. There's confusion in our English language and even in our evangelical theology at times about forgiveness. That forgiveness is no matter what is done to you, you must forgive. That is, and effectively we can understand that to mean you pretend like it never happened. Just sweep it under the rug. The Christian thing is to, and a lot of people have, have brought abuse on themselves by believing that or being taught that. Women returning to abusive relationships or children to abusive relationships. What Jesus said is, I want you to, you know, how often are we supposed to forgive? They had the disciples asked Jesus. And he said, up to 70 times 7, as often as your brother repents. Forgiveness in the Bible is the normalization of a relationship based on repentance. There's no unconditional forgiveness with God. Forgiveness is granted when there is repentance and righteousness is applied. Now, God is more gracious to forgive and restore our relationship than we are with each other. Sometimes we demand absolutely perfect repentance, which we can never attain. But I don't want you to take this passage and infer from it that if you have been in an abusive relationship where somebody has, been, has treated you with evil, uh, uh, that you automatically run back to them. I've, I've learned to make that clarity, clarification through the years because I have... I've experienced uh, some of my parishioners who have interpreted that the wrong way and gone back into dangerous situations. So to withhold forgiveness or the normalization of a relationship because it's not based on repentance is not hate. While we are called, we're not called to forgive and normalize every relationship until, there's, until there is repentance, we are always called to love. And love, as other authors have said, is bold. And sometimes bold love in those evil situations is to give the gift of defeat. Sometimes love is to prosecute. Sometimes love is to pursue uh, discipline. Such a way that someone hits the end of their resources and is forced to repent. That's the kind of love that's being described in this age. God says, Hosea, I want you to go and love Gomer. He doesn't say, I want you to pretend like she never did anything. I, I want you to, to, to wipe the slate clean and he, I want you to go love her. She's not going to appreciate it. She's not going to respond, but you must pursue her. I want you to love her. Just like God pursues us and loves us, at times giving us defeat, at times bringing severe mercies into our lives because he loves us too much to allow us to go to hell. Because he loves us too much to allow us to continue in our dehumanizing behavior. And we imitate that kind of love that we have experienced. Before she was worthy, he's called to go to her. And before anyone else around us is worthy, we are called to Love them. 
And notice God loves us and has loved us as it's portrayed here in this powerful story. Not just when we were unlovable and unworthy, but while we were enemies. That was the assurance of pardon today. While we were yet sinners, while we were enemies, not when we had shown some promise, but God sent his son while we were yet his enemies. This God, the, 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 the simple statement of the gospel, the, most, the simplest one we know in the Bible. John three sixteen. God so loved the world. That word world can mean any, any, any of eight things in the Bible. But in that context, it means enemies. It's that, it's, that, it's that system of hate that is poised against God. And if they had the power, if we had the power, we would take him off his throne and kill him. And while we were in that state, God, who is infinitely above all that we can ask or imagine, in, 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 uh, uh, indescribably holy, lives an unapproachable light. About whom to say he is infinite is to say absolutely is, is to say nothing at all because it doesn't begin to approach his infinity. That God chose to love us, the world, while we're his enemies. And when he did that, what did he? What did he do? What did it cost him when he made that decision? God so loved the world. How much did he love the world, John? He loved the world so much that he chose to love the world more than he loved the preservation of the life of his precious only begotten son. He gave his son for us unworthy enemies. That we might be his sons and daughters. What did it cost him? What did it cost Hosea? Verses 2 and 3. I bought her. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver. And about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her. You must not be a prostitute. Or be intimate with any man. And I will live with you. I will behave as our bulletin says. I will behave the same way toward you. When, when Hosea went to the brothel, he had to bargain with the owner. But Gomer had become cheap. You know, the price of redeeming a slave in the Old Testament was 30 shekels. So Gomer was worth less in these men's eyes than a slave. She's half price. She's not desirable anymore. Used up. Give me 15 shekels. Throw in several bushels of barley too. At least it'll get me some bread. Bread is worth more to me than she is. Did it cost Hosea? 
It was cheaper than a slave, the price, but it wasn't cheap. It cost Hosea his reputation. It cost him financial resources. It cost him his pride. It cost shame. It cost the sacrifice of bringing someone close to him who had betrayed him, had children with another man who had, who had uh, abandoned their oldest child and meant that he, at least initially, would not have a wife because he says, you will not have relations with another man, nor will I with you. I'm buying you out of this dehumanizing situation, out of this humiliating situation to give you life and, and, uh, and supply and protection. But I'm not, I don't have hopes for you to be my wife. Don't push the analogy too far. What you are to see is the sacrifice that God pays to redeem us. All of the words translated redeem in the Bible have to do with sacrifice. Here is one kara, which is just to, is to, to buy, to bargain. Or there's ga'al, go'el, a, a kinsman redeemer or, or kofer, a ransom for harm done. Like your ox gores another man, you have to ransom. Lutrao in the New Testament, exagorazo in the New Testament. The, the common denominator of all of these words for redemption is it's costly. And most of the time it involves blood. There is no redemption by God for us that does not cost him. It is not that God says to you when he says, I forgive you. When God says, I love you, I want you to be my son or daughter. God doesn't say, we'll pretend like nothing happened. We're just going to, turn, we're just going to forget that. We're going to toss that away. We're going to, we're going to turn away. We're going to pretend like that never happened. God can't say that and be true to himself. He has to pay for all of that rebellion, all of that sin, all of those egregious, ungrateful attacks upon his being that we did before conversion and after. It's only when you realize the price, the cost, of our redemption that you can sing that grace is amazing. It's something like this. I have a friend who was a, a pastor many years ago and now he's a kind of a pastor to pastors, a coach, a pastor's coach. And I remember him telling the story many years ago, soon after it happened, his son was eight or nine years old. They were going down a, on a, a whitewater rafting trip. And uh, his son uh, was just totally ignored all of the coaching, all of the advice, all of the warnings of the guide. The guide said, now look, the, this, the water is calm right now, but it's going to get dangerous. And, and what you need to do is don't stand up in the boat. You need to hold onto your paddle. When we, when we hit rough water, you need to make sure you're down low, you're leaning in, and, uh, and you listen to me. Son didn't hear any of it. His son was misbehaving the whole trip. Finally, they came to the intense rapids. Son was still standing up, leaning outside, doing whatever. His dad couldn't couldn't control him, or couldn't didn't control him. He was launched from the boat. 
And he ended up in one of those things. I don't know what you call it. I should have looked it up. But, you know, one of those washing machine things, one of those hydraulic phenomena that just twists you, just spins you, spins you, spins you. It's killed people. It's called brain damage. It's called lung damage. It's dangerous. And if you're a little guy like this guy, you can't swim out of it. The guide says, you know, wait till we get to a landing spot. We'll go back and get him. His dad would hear nothing than that. He jumps over immediately into the same washing machine and grabs his son after being banged up and, and bruised and tossed around himself. He grabs his son because he's tall and at that time athletic, grabbed his son and threw him back into the boat. That night he said, his son was very attentive. Dad, why don't you put your feet up? Dad, why don't you rest? Can I get you something to drink? Now, why, why did he act that way? Because every time he looked at his dad, he saw the scars, he saw the bruises. What a difference it would make in his life. I don't think Jimmy still has scars from it, but what if... What if Jimmy had suffered a, a laceration that went across his face, took his nose off. He healed from it, but he never looked the same. And every time his son looked at his dad's face, he said, my dad is like that because of what I did. My dad did that for me. Would he ever speak a crossword to his dad again? And then imagine this. What if because of his trauma, his son saw his dad's face in every other person he dealt with? Then instead of his mother's face, he saw his dad's face. Instead of his brother's face, he saw his dad's face. Instead of his neighbor's face, his teacher's face, his peer's face, his colleague's face, he saw his dad's face. How different would he be? Would he ever be able to act with pride? Would he ever be able to think I'm better than you? Would he ever be able to think I deserve the place where I am? Would he ever be able to be anything other than grateful for the price his dad paid to save his life? And that is exactly what the cross is supposed to be. We brush it up. We paint it with gold. We make it look pretty and nice. But that is not the cross that Jesus died on. The cross that Jesus died on was splattered with blood. Jesus groaned and suffered pain. And every place we look, first in the mirror and then in others, we are to see that cross. So what's the response? Just what God says he's going to make sure it is. You have to stay tuned whether Gomer ever comes around or not. But for now, the Israelites, verse 4. You'll live with many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. What in the world is he talking about? I am going to sanctify you. I'm going to take away your lust of the eyes, that is, trust in kings. I'm going to take away your lust of the flesh, that is, walking around bragging with the ephod and so forth. I'm going to take away 
your pride, or the pride of life, the ephod, and the lust of the flesh, the worship with sacred stones and raisin cakes and these other things that related to fertility, religion. I want to take away those things that are of the world, not of me. And I'm going to replace it. And I'm going to turn you back. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. It can't be the old David because he's been dead for a while. This must be Christ. David, Jesus, the greater, David's greater son will be their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord like they do today in worship and to his blessings in the last days, which is where we're living now. You see the faithfulness of God in grace, and here is what he does. This is what he produces when we see the price he paid. It produces this kind of worship, this kind of sanctification, turning your back on pride, turning your back on the pursuit of the lust of the flesh and turning your back on the lust of the eyes, which is I can't trust until I see it. Brendan Manning now passed away, but he was a famous author, wrote his most famous book probably was the Ragamuffin Gospel, which said the Gospels for ragamuffins, for bedraggled people, not for perfect ones. Brendan Manning was a, a kind of lay priest. When he took on his priesthood in the Franciscan order, he was asked to take on a new first name. His given name was Richard. But he decided uh, that uh, he would take on the name of a man that he thought was the greatest saint he had ever known, his friend Richard Manning. Ray Brennan, or, uh, that's his given name, Ray replaced his first name with Brennan, the last name of his best friend. Ray Brennan and Richard Manning grew up together. They did everything together. They bought a, a car together in high school. They double dated. They, went to, they finished high school together. They went to college together. They joined the army together. They went through boot camp together. They went to the war together. One day in a foxhole, they were eating chocolate and talking about the old days in Brooklyn when a grenade rolled into their foxhole. And Richard Manning smiled at his friend, threw down his chocolate, and threw his body on the grenade. He died so that Ray Richard Manning would live. Years later, after Brennan Manning, now a priest, was visiting with Ray Brennan's mother, in Brooklyn, talking about old times. And Brendan Manning said, do you, do you think that they told some funny stories? He said, uh, Mrs. Brennan, do you, do you think Ray loved me? 
the room grew silent. And Mrs. Brennan stood up and said through her tears and gritted teeth, how could you ever ask if my son loved you? You're alive only because of his love. Brendan Manning said later, can you imagine standing at the cross of Christ next to his mother Mary and putting your hands on your hips and saying, does God really love me? And Mary saying, how could you ever doubt that? My son died that you might live. Jesus died for us. While we were his enemies, prostitutes. And the only way to see this world to see God. The only way to profess Christianity, the only way to be a Christian is to see everything through the prism of the cross of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Holy Father, thank you for so loving us that you gave your Son. And Holy Spirit, loving us so passionately that you apply that Son's work to us over and over again. May it be that not one person in this room or within the sound of my voice would leave this message without asking Jesus to be his or her Savior. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's people said together, amen.